Hauser, and welcome to 3-Bit Design, where we break down some of the most influential games into the three bits that we think defined them the most. I'm Tristan. I'm Oliver. And today we are talking about Half-Life 2, the reputable and highly recommended sequel. Indeed. Oh, you, that was like finishing each other's sandwiches. Well <laughs> um, a reminder, no spoilers ahead if you are listening to this for the first time, but uh, maybe you aren't, so you know that already. The structure is, as per usual, we give a little bit of an introduction, a little bit of a context, hello and greeting to what the game is that we're talking about, and then we'll literally just dive into three uh, related or unrelated bits, just like, hey, this was a cool part of this game we thought was rad, and we'll discuss it, and thank you for joining us. Any other intro shout-outs, Oliver, before we go to the description? That sounds perfect. Yeehaw! Half-Life 2 is a 2004 first-person shooter, and it was developed by Valve. Like the original Half-Life from 1998, Half-Life 2 combines shooting, puzzles, and storytelling, and adds features such as vehicles and physics-based gameplay, something hopefully we'll touch on in a momento. Players control Gordon Freeman as he joins a resistance movement to liberate the Earth from the control of an alien empire, the Combine. Valve's president, Gabe Newell, set his team the goal of redefining the FPS genre with this game. And I think uh, they may have achieved something similar for their time, because Half-Life 2 was created using Valve's source engine, which was being developed at the same time, which is very interesting. The development on this game lasted five years, years. Oliver, have you ever worked on a game for five years? No, I don't think so. It's long. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, The game was released on Steam uh, in November of 2004 and received universal acclaim. It won 39 Game of the Year awards and has been cited as one of the best games ever made. It was later ported to the other things. You know, Xbox, PlayStation, Mac OS, all that jazz. And by 2011, it had sold 12 million copies. That is the description. Oliver, when did you first play Half-Life 2? Can you remember? <laughs> I didn't. This is <laughs> <Would> the first time. <laughs> <laughs> what? I am not appalled yeah. or offended yeah. in any way. That's great. Okay, so That's also why I wanted to do it. Because I was oh, like, man. I need to play this. And this is a good excuse. Brilliant. Well, I mean... Do you want to just kick into like your first thoughts on it and and start the first bit then, shall we? Uh, yeah, I just um, did it go on PlayStation. I didn't know that. Uh, according to my research, mm. PlayStation Three, I believe. Interesting, interesting, interesting. Cool. Yeah. Um. So yeah, my my initial thoughts um were that uh it was really cool and I can see it totally being ahead of its time. Um, the it's impressive how much is like just just action packed sequences uh without any sort of uh glamorous cutscenes or anything. Uh so yeah, I was I was pretty impressed with that. The, even and even like the combat, some people might think it's quite dated now, but uh but I really enjoyed it and I think like the reticle can use some some touch ups. Uh, that's not the clearest thing, but uh, but I did quite like the um, the handheldiness of the combat and stuff like that. There was um, it's quite interesting because I played a bunch of older games recently, like um, Perfect Dark and um, uh, Goldeneye, 
and oh, wow. they yeah. both of those also don't have um aiming down sights uh, so it's quite interesting to compare it with this i think this game has definitely done the combat the best out of those um <clears throat> Interestingly, I would agree. This is fascinating. Before we started recording this, I literally didn't know that this was the first time you were playing <laughs> this game. I remember, I don't think I played it, maybe it was around 2004, maybe soon thereafter, and I got about as far, no, I got further than I did in replaying it recently. But mm. I remember playing at, you know, them good old lands back in yonder years. Uh, we'd go to a LAN and we'd play Half-Life Deathmatch or, you know, any of the Half-Life multiplayer mods because it was mm. also around that time that Counter-Strike was quite popular. Uh, but I do remember playing some of these arena levels where all you had was the gravity gun and you had nothing else um, but uh, saw blades in the level that you oh, had wow. to pick up. That's cool. And it was great. So I remember playing it or sort of accessing Half-Life through the multiplayer from lands first and mm. then Half-Life 2. And I was just like, oh, immersive story. So I think it's fascinating that hopefully we can bring two experiences of this game to bear in these three bits. Yeah, for sure. Um, I also thought it's quite interesting that... I think I think the reason why I haven't played it before is because I grew up... I didn't really grow up with PC gaming. Um, it was mostly, you said it like it, it was ported to consoles eventually, but it wasn't really my radar at that point. Like, I think it was the biggest on PC and I wasn't really PC gaming at the time. It was mostly consoles and, and Nintendo handhelds and stuff like that. So, so yeah, that's probably the reason why the only PC gaming I did at the time was like point and click, um, adventures on my grandparents' PCs and stuff. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Like put put and things like that. Pajama Sam. That's good. <laughs> There's some references for you. Yeah. All right. Without further ado, let's jump in. Bit number one is situational variety. Uh, talking a little bit about the combat and um, it's almost sandbox uh, combat that Half-Life 2 deploys through uh through the way that it sets up the levels and the weapons you retrieve and and the ways you can interact with the world with all the physics they put into the game and things like that um so to start us off the first thing that was really noticeable to me was uh the onboarding of mechanics was very kind of step by step showing you little little by little the different things you can do in this world so you start off the game with zero heads-up display, zero UI, pretty much. It's just it's just the camera, and then you go through, you unlock, you figure out how to pick stuff up. That's the first thing. Pick stuff up, throw stuff around. Um, and then it kind of... The next thing, you get a gun, then you get your your suit and, your, and the gun, and um, you start learning how to shoot. Then there's like one of the first, some of the first combat levels will have a lot of these explosive barrels. So you you kind of like, oh, gun plus explosive barrels. It's kind of like nicely, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> nicely introduced there. So you learn how to use, shoot the barrels for explosives, things like that. Then eventually there's less of those objects and um, it kind of like lets you explore how you want to attack enemies, stuff like that. Then there's the gravity gun. 
you get eventually, which kind of like ups that picking up and throwing stuff. Because you could already pick up and throw explosive barrels and then shoot them afterwards and things like that. But now you've got this gun to do it and you can even move stuff that's further away and put them in place and things like that. It kind of like levels up that whole system. Um, and then, and then, yeah, when you get the gravity gun, it throws you immediately into this level, uh, Ravenholm, I think it's called. It's like uh, yeah. full of, full of traps and things you can pick up and throw around. Uh, noticeably the, the saw, saw blades uh there's like a crazy amount of those when you enter that level <laughs> clearly it's telling you like you should use your gravity gun with this um so yeah so then you get a lot of saw blades there further on there aren't as many but they're still kind of lying around and then you get more barrels back and there's different explosive canisters and stuff like that that also start appearing so it's it's quite nice how it kind of onboards you with all these little elements little by little and then kind of like throws them in your face before taking them away a little bit and then kind of like meshing everything together so that it, it's really up to you on now that you know you can do this and this and this how do you want to do these things in which order do you want to do this at all or do you want to focus on just gunplay do you want to like you can defeat full levels just using gravity and gravity gun and stuff like that with the physics without ever shooting bullets that's pretty um, cool. And I bet yeah. you that there are players who have, you know how often players will create their own game within yeah, a game, yeah. right? I bet you there's people who've done that many times. Yeah, it's like following the traffic light rules in GTA and stuff like that. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Similar vibes. Um, so yeah, it's really cool how it kind of like throws everything in your face, then strips it down, then allows you to kind of like uh, use the elements to, as, as you wish. Um, and the levels are really nicely set up with with kind of different. Sometimes you're at a higher angle, sometimes you're at a lower angle, and you can kind of play to whatever advantage best suits your needs, uh, the way you're playing the game specifically. Um, so yeah, all of that combined, I thought just really makes it makes the player feel smart in combat, which is quite rare, I think. Um, a lot of combat focused games you're just kind of like button mashing pretty much <laughs> and then and then with the occasional combo um or like ultimate ability or something uh but here it's really there is there's no upgrades there's no ability system it's purely focused on what's in the level environment objects plus your weapons as they come base um so it's it's really cool how it's like here is these tools up to you what you do with them and mm. and it just makes you feel really creative and smart when you when you totally purposefully end up killing 10 monsters with one <laughs> explosive <laughs> barrel or something that just happened to be there so um, true yeah, yeah yeah i mean this yeah i think of those i forget what they're called the creatures up in the ceiling with the long oh yeah, yeah, yeah. things Man, i don't I know their those name things. but yeah they're pretty um, scary I know there's ways to like, oh, if you think ahead, you can deal with them by, you know, tossing them a barrel or a box or something. Yeah, yeah. Often I get caught trying to do that and then I'm getting yanked up anyway. And I'm like, ah, <laughs> that sort of uh, immersion, I think, not immersion, sorry, improvisation, uh, I think speaks to that creativity you're talking about that they've created and crafted, I think is the word for me, these levels and the gameplay moments within them so well that it allows for the player to be creative. I think you're, you're spot on with that uh, observation. 
Yeah, for sure. And I think it's also really interesting how, as you say, different things react with different enemy designs differently. Like, uh, like that one with the with the long tongue. If you like, the first time I was messing around with that, I threw a barrel at at it and it picked it up, but nothing happened. Like it went all the way up and then it came back down, and I was like, oh, of course. I should light the barrel while he's being pulled up and stuff like that. So <laughs> that's really cool. I I love that. And the part I will always remember of Half-Life, and I think we'll get to this maybe later, is mm. how you learned that by playing and by doing. And yeah, the, exactly. The world and that level was structured to allow you to learn that as opposed to giving you a pop-up to say, hey, by the way, barrels yeah, can yeah, go yeah. over here. Yeah, super satisfying. And then also... Um, it's it's quite funny in compare because I also pl- I played Half Life Alex fully through before this. <gasps> oh, um, that's cool. <laughs> so there is like there's a lot of like these things that I experimented with in Half Life Alex that are very similar, but uh, made tailored for VR, obviously. Mm. Uh, but there was also those things of like chucking a barrel at you and then throwing it at one of those uh, licky tongues, and then. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to do this whole episode and not know the original name of those things. <laughs> it's going to be improvisation all the way through. Uh, so yeah, so it's it's very cool to see kind of the comparisons with this game and, and how much they kept. Uh, there's a lot of like the core essence that they completely kept the same and things like that, which is really cool to see. And and the creativity kind of like, it, again, feels very much alive in, in the VR Half-Life Alex recreation of the game. That's awesome. That's very, very cool. I read in the um, post-mortem that's up on the game developer website mm-hmm. that some of the takeaways and like fruits of labor, they spoke about um, making rough but global decisions early. So this is more, you know, peeling back the curtain and talking about how they got to these awesome designs. But mm. they, they mentioned like weapons, story, basic monster behaviors, that when you invest in those things, those whatever those are, those mechanics, those features, that they should come with constraints so that you minimize the investment until you hit critical mass of quality and then you can iterate until good becomes great. And I thought it was such an interesting approach. This is both in that post-mortem and mm. in a book that was pretty much my, my source of truth for this episode. Uh, have you, did you hear the here? Did you hear the book, Oliver? Did you see <laughs> the book Half-Life 2 Raising the Bar? Oh, no, I don't know about that one. Great book. Great. Like, very difficult to get a hold of, but mm. uh, kind of a, a development book. A little bit of a mixture of, like, like the art of a game book. Like, I know we spoke last episode about Miles Morales. Like, there's a book that has interviews with some of the developers. This is a mixture of, like, a, a guide that shows you so many designs that weren't put into the game of things. Mm. Um And things that led to mechanics. And so much was cut, but I think it's because they focused on... Uh, getting to the core of what makes a good mechanic like fun and they tested it to, to an inch of its life and perhaps that is why this is my point that could be carried across to something like Half-Life Alex. Hmm. Makes sense. Yeah, I, I will say however the game is a whole lot scarier in VR. <laughs> <laughs> Can like so it believe it turns into a horror game. At that oh point. man, yeah, definitely. It's pretty scary when the when the face huggers come onto your face. Oh no! Yeah. Oh, that you, you have to like rip wrecked. them off. You have to like pull them off your face. 
I think we've mentioned this before in, in this podcast, yeah. but I yeah, I think I, so. Yeah, <laughs> that and the fact that I couldn't get through Alien Isolation because the first person <laughs> shooter is very immersive for me, and that was way too scary. So I bet you VR would just nah. Yeah, I couldn't. And just I to have, finish off the bit as well, I want to kind of like touch on a little bit. Like they start introducing a few more interesting environmental things you can interact with later on in the game. Like um, like in Ravenholm, there's the there's like the cars that drop down and you can like you can kind of like wait until the enemies are underneath it then pull the lever to drop the cars on their heads and stuff like that so there's little environmental interactions and then also when you're um when you're kind of doing the the driving on the air mobile what's the name oh like little jet ski thing the yeah the hover craft thing it has a name i had it written down airboat that's it there we go so there's an airboat. So when you're doing the airboat thing, you can also like stuff like just driving into pylons where enemies are standing on and like dropping their platforms and things like that. It's like they thought of a lot of these kind of like natural interactions that you hope would work in a game and they actually do in this game. And yeah. It's just very satisfying. That is so satisfying. I remember when you get the machine gun mounted to that airboat and then mm. there's you know soldiers up on the top and they're shooting at you and you just have to shoot the barrel at the bottom which makes the yeah. whole bridge collapse and you're like yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah wonderful bravo yeah i had a question for you on the topic of uh, sort of this variety of of sandboxiness and levels it occurred to me in this playthrough many many years later that there is a convention in modern shooters to have a a clamber or a sort of climb animation or assist when you are at the ledge or, or at the edge of something. Mm. But that isn't here as far as I can tell. It's it's of an age where if your jump doesn't get you up to that piece, <laughs> you ain't getting up. So, yeah. you know, d- find another way around. How did you find that, like, what was that to you? Did you, did you see that? How did that make you feel? Like, was that interesting or... Different. Yeah, it was it was interesting because I did find like there was a little bit of an edge assist when when you were kind of like in especially in areas where you were meant to kind of hop across. There yeah, did you seem to be a little, a little bit of a leeway where you kind of like float back up a little mm-hmm. bit. Uh, but yeah, there is no sort of bespoke animation for it or anything that tells you you kind of clutch the ledge there, which was quite interesting. And then you can't you can't just climb up sides either. Um, yeah, and I think. In a lot of games, I would find it frustrating, but I didn't find it notably frustrating here. So I think the level design kind of um, bear that in mind when they made it to mm-hmm. kind of make it satisfying without it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think cool. it worked well. here. Yeah. How are we doing? Is that bit number one? Yeah, that's all. That's all, folks. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much. Uh, Shall we proceed to bit number two? For bit number two, we are looking at full continuous control. So this idea of immersive environmental storytelling, you've probably heard me talk about this before on this podcast. It's my favorite thing (laughs) about games. Uh, But really what we want to focus on for Half-Life 2 is this idea of no cuts, no cutscenes, that you have show pieces that are driven through haste, I think is how you wrote it down, Oliver. Hmm. This idea of propelling you through set piece to set piece, right? Yeah. So my take on this, and then I'll... uh, ask Oliver to jump in pretty please is that 
full control for immersion uh, is sort of like role play and it's the part of games I think I like the most. I'm that kind of player that's looking for that in my games. And yes, we know that Half-Life 2 is famous for Gordon Freeman being a faceless, okay, it's not faceless, I suppose, a voiceless uh, protagonist so that they are you. And I'm going to list out some of the principles of Half-Life that Valve used as pillars in developing this game that should make that make more sense. But I say that saying, cool, here's a blank canvas for you to project yourself onto to be the the character in the game. And yet, I am aware that I've played as Princess Emily Caldwin in Dishonored 2, and also Billy Lurk in Death of the Outsider, and completely connected with those characters. Mm. And there is definitely something to be said for Jason E. Kelly's delivery of Cult in Deathloop. So, yeah, I think you can connect to the characters even if they do uh, possess their own characterization. But for this, what was effective to me, I think, is that it was blank. Uh, and that is how you interact with the world and the characters that are talking to you the whole time. Yeah, I think I think it's quite interesting in this one because, like, Gordon Freeman is known as this kind of like blank slate that you are. But at the same time, I thought he was I thought it was quite involved in the narrative to a point where you were kind of playing as a third person, like. Like you were being called this, like you were being seen as this almost godlike person everyone admired and stuff. And 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 just I didn't play the first game, <laughs> <laughs> so just like coming onto this game, and then everyone kind of saying like, "Oh, it's you! My gosh, I can't believe what you did for us!" I was like, "I, I haven't done anything yet." You know? <laughs> <laughs> Let me prove myself to you. Oh, that's a good point. That's a very good point. Like there is a yeah. history to him, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So that must be it. Especially in the second game, I guess it's more of a developed character. I have very um, vague, wafty, misty memories of Half-Life. I don't think I played the whole thing. I played probably a mm. few levels, uh, be that as it may. Uh, well, anyway, on the topic of, of then how uh, narrative, this idea of being so immersed and, and not being taken out of the action into a cutscene or anything like that, uh, there is a, an article... Uh, about Mark Laidlaw, who is, I think, one of the main writers of Half-Life, from an article called The Narrative Had to be Baked into the Corridors. And there's just a short little stint or, or stint of words. Yeah, that's, that's quite an interesting phrase. Uh, a short <laughs> piece of words I wanted to share. So they say, by modern standards, there's very little dialogue in Half-Life. Rather, Mark Laidlaw had the dev team explain the stories they were trying to tell and help them solve narrative problems through level design. So that's mm. very interesting, I think, as an approach for a writer, because your first port of call as a writer, right, is to write words. And this one is saying, okay, cool, that's the story. Well, how can we tell that without having characters speak the words, can we put it into the world? I love that. You know, show, don't tell. So he says lots of traps and detours and obstacles and occasional moments of breakthrough uh, led to really good level design that tells its own story. You don't need NPCs popping up to tell you what to do if your visual grammar is clear enough. Then when characters do pop up, they can say lines of dialogue that make them feel like characters instead of signposts. Do you think that is accurately what you experienced oliver yeah i think they did a really good job in this game of, of just uh making the world feel alive without you almost um i think it's also very what you just said is like extra interesting in 
kind of the contrast from the first few missions where you're amongst a lot of people and like the house is getting raided and stuff. There's a lot of characters there and dialogue. But then once you kind of go onto the um you go onto the airboat and then you go onto this buggy ride across the beaches. Um at that point there is you're kind of on your own for quite a while. And there's all these little there's like these almost abandoned looking houses and stuff you drive past that you don't need to go to it's not like main story is just keep going on the road, you know. But then there's like these kind of like intriguing looking, abandoned looking places that kind of just ooze of like narrative environmental storytelling there of like what happened here? Do I want to go and find out? Do I want to investigate this place? Will it will it be infested? Will there be someone living there? Things like that. Like I think they did a really good job at not just like throwing everything at you with dialogue and just letting the world speak for itself. Yeah, yeah. The last point I have then from that is to just highlight, I think there's one, two, three, four, four or five bullet points from that post-mortem article I mentioned about the principles of Half-Life and something that was carried uh, throughout development of this game as a constraint. The case study, I guess, or, or example that sticks out the most to me as something that captures this idea of this bit of the full continuous control is that transporter sequence right in the beginning. Do you remember? Yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah. My favorite thing. When I played it again, I was so just cool. as gobsmacked as I was <laughs> when I first experienced it. And yes, there are lots of video essays around that beautiful moment in the beginning of the game where the, the cop steps out and says, pick up that can. And that's you engaging with both the world narratively and the mechanics uh, in gameplay. But that transporter sequence to me captures this idea of like, we're not going to pull the camera away mm -hmm. to show you anything else. And I know there have been people who critique uh, the fact that some of the story is lost because you only ever see it from Gordon Freeman's eyes. But I love this moment because it goes, well, we can bend the rules of narrative storytelling to give you a sense of the world. I mean, you appear in the big bad boss's office i think for a yeah. moment and he's like is that Crazy. you <laughs> and i was like ah we're shadowing yeah. how, how brilliant yeah that's so good uh so keeping that in mind that example for anyone who's played the game and particularly for you oliver these are the the bullet points uh of things they learned while making half-life that they then used as constraints for half-life 2 as principles as pillars don't impose a personality on the player i.e never let gordon talk Two, don't implement cues that separate the player from Gordon Freeman, i.e. never leave first-person perspective. Maintain a continuous timeline as much as possible. Three, provide a strong visual grammar for gameplay elements without breaking realism. Four, all training should be accomplished within the context of the game. And then lastly, provide distinct gameplay mechanics and themes in each chapter. I feel like they were successful in achieving these principles and pillars throughout. What do you say? Yeah, for sure. Also, the uh, all the tutorialization was all diegetic, which is really which I think is good enough for me to wrap up bit number two because I think that's what we want to get to for bit number three. Yes. Yes, but I did want to touch on <laughs> a few little bits. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, say. please. Uh, how rude of me! No, no. Carry on. Carry on. Yes, yes. Um, I guess first, first I'll I'll kind of jump on that. Um on that uh, teleporter sequence you were talking about, because 
I thought that was also super interesting because it um like it kind of goes against the it's like the most kind of cinematic like showpiece that you get in the game. Yeah. Where where you you don't have to look you're not forced to like your camera control isn't taken over and you're not forced to look in a specific place, but stuff is going so fast and you're kind of like looking at a certain space already that you're almost in a cinematic in a sense because like it's all in front of you um but it but you still have the full control and i think that that was like that was super clever it was really well done um and then and then yeah also ending up in the director's office <laughs> i was like oh my god yeah. this is like the boss of the boss that moment when you you suddenly appear underwater and then yeah, giant that creatures coming towards awesome. you i was like this is amazing so this is that was so good so yeah, so it was really cool how they kind of created those cinematic-like showpieces while still maintaining full control of the player movement. Um, and I think like there's a similar thing that happens when you uh, reach one of the one of the rebe- rebel bases and you go in an elevator and you kind of go down a few flights. And there's flights where you don't stop, uh, floors where you don't actually get off, but you can see through. And uh, there's a little bit of world building going on there of like of what they're doing in these labs and stuff like that, without um, without kind of explicitly telling you what's going on. And that that felt like to me like a similar thing where in a, a lot of the time you maintain full control and it's like narrative stuff coming at you in a relatively roomy space. Like if you'll have a full room where you can kind of mess around with objects and throw stuff around while people are talking. And then the way they kind of keep you in that moment without having to do a cinematic is by a person needing to actually like hit the key card thing to open the door or something to get to the next area, which is, which is very clever. Um, But then I think these, that teleporter sequence and then the elevator sequence, sequences like that specifically kind of tighten that space even more to like a, a tiny little space to let your eye focus a little bit more on, on kind of the seat, the, the uh the show pieces which was which was really cool to see that difference there hmm. um and so yeah and also the whole thing about the game doesn't really cut other than the loading screens but yeah it doesn't it doesn't cut either like you're kind of like stuck on, on like a still of that last screen i see what you mean it doesn't fade it to loading, black or anything and then you're back on that same screen and it continues yeah so I was quite impressed with that because I remember we were talking in the other episode of God of War about like, this is the, this was the first kind of continuous game, uh, no cuts. That was very impressive for this game. And I was surprised to see it here because obviously it's in first person. It's a little bit easier because you don't need to do like with God of War, there's a lot of, lot more animating to be done with the third person perspective and things like that. So it is still a lot more impressive. Yeah. I mean, it's still interesting to see. That one of those moments of like Kratos opening a door really slowly or squeezing through a gap. If yeah. Gordon Freeman just found a way to do that, they probably could have hid the loading behind something. Yeah, for and sure. We would have had the same concept. Yeah. So I was I was very impressed to see that. I was like, whoa, these guys did it ages before. That's pretty cool. <laughs> Isn't that always how it goes? And I quite liked how they kind of there was like those loading screens were no fuss. It was just we're loading now and wait a couple seconds. Yeah. We'll, we'll keep going, you know, like there's other loading screens like say um like usually you'll cut to black where there'll be like a little uh splash screen or something um 
while it's loading to enter with a little animation or something to entertain the player. But I think here, keeping it simple totally played in the game's favor and it, and it kind of like kept you in the moment without pulling you out of it. And, and it helped bring the whole game into like one continuous experience, which was super cool. Agreed. Um, and so, yeah, and then, um, so yeah, and I think also what we were talking about with the haste is kind of what really struck me in this game is how the action sequences actually felt pressured. There's a lot of games where it's kind of, where they're like, oh, you got to run to this thing. And you're like, yeah, yeah, let me just grab this loot over here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But here they were really kind of like piling on and I don't know what it was, but it was like a mixture of great sound effects, the great kind of like enemies approaching, running at you, um, yeah, people you shouting from the sides and the doors closing. is there, right? Yeah. So like all those little like level design things, audio things, narrative things were all pushing you on and music, especially great music as well. It was kind of like putting you in the heat of the moment and really making you run. There wasn't really anything worth stopping for or anything, which was, which really played to the game's favor. And it really felt like I was part of an action sequence a lot of the time without any sort of like fancy cinematics and stuff, which was very impressive. Like when the, when you're on the airboat and there's like a massive, uh, there's like a massive exhaust from a factory uh, that kind of falls down in front of you. You're kind of like, you can look anywhere because you're still in play mode and you're still driving. You're kind of like looking up like, oh my God, what is <laughs> Oh, what is yes. going to happen is it's super yeah, cool. You, you become the camera, right? You look where you want to yeah, go. Yeah, you're that's... kind of doing the cinematics there. It's yeah. pretty sick. But yeah. here I am in the moment. <laughs> it was, yeah, it was a really awesome moment. Oh, lovely. So, yeah, yes. so all those things, super cool. Um, cinematic showpieces kind of still work there. You make them yourself. And, and the constant kind of egging on the player feels super immersively cinematic. A lot of the time in the heat of the action. Things spawning in left and right all the time. Really well done. I think noted, I was thinking a lot of Call of Duty games that came after that seem very inspired by yeah, this game. Yeah, I reckon There's a that's lot of a, these like chase sequences. Yeah, that's a good comparison. Yeah, yeah. well said. Cool. Dunzo. On to the third. Bit number three. We've got level design driven signposting or diegetic signposting. So uh -huh. I think what really struck me in this game is a complete lack of UI. I think that's a lot. A lot of old games have this, to be honest. But, um, but I think this is one of the games that pulled it off the best that I've seen. Where, um, as I said earlier, you kind of start out with zero UI at all. You kind of just have, you're just a camera pretty much. Um, and then when you start getting the suit and stuff, you'll get your health bars, things like that, and, and your ammunition. But at no point is there any sort of uh, HUD or UI for indicating what, where your objective is, where you need to go. It's all completely level design driven and, um, and like driven through visual stimuli as well as audio cues. There's a lot of times where it's, Sounds like enemies are for, are in that room or something like that. So you know you probably need to head through there, or there's or there's radios that are playing out and and kind of calling you. 
Um, and then there's also sometimes friend when you're approaching a friendly base or something, there might be a friendly calling out to you saying, hey, Mr. Freeman, over here. <laughs> 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 oh, very well done. <laughs> so, so yeah, it's really cool. Um, I think the level design especially is just, it's just something to note. It's just astounding how they manage to kind of guide you oh, yeah. a lot of the time. Uh, I think like it's some of them, if not the most impressive level design I've seen in, in especially in first-person shooters, adventure games. I, th- I wonder if part of it is because they they've got a lovely, unique merging of like platformy puzzling mm. and action combat. Like I don't think I've seen many of the sort of puzzle aspects uh, or sort of first-person gameplay you see here in a in a Call of Duty. <laughs> I think yeah. the primary task there is to That's true. You know, push yeah. the button when the reticule is over someone's body. Yeah, for sure. I think the blend of the puzzle elements there. Definitely. There was one yesterday I thought was such a good level design. Uh, got me to the top or like through buildings and whatever to try open up one of the damn walls when you're in the airboat. Mm. Um, and I got up to the top after having just been introduced in the previous one to the mechanic of, cool, find the valve to interact with it to open the gate i found work my way through defeat everyone get to the top and it's broken there's electricity on it it's not working you can't <laughs> open it so go hmm. and you look across the way and through like wire mesh you see these exploding barrels and you're like huh i know mm. i can shoot those so you do and then wham this thing explodes releasing a huge rock that just careens through these huge concrete doors and you've done it but this beautiful moment <laughs> where i literally doubled back and i went up oh, that doesn't work maybe i've gone the wrong way where do i need to go and i was like they would never let me backtrack like this <laughs> yeah exactly yeah and then i was like oh yeah so yeah you're right excellent uh, level design for that yeah for sure it like all of these Without any, there's no handholding. There's no, there's no sort of ping system or any hints when you kind of get stuck for a little while. It's just like you'll figure it out eventually. Um, and I think just it's just a big, big. Um, how, do you, how do you say it? Cheers to the level design that 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 works because um, because of what you just said. For example, like in the in the airboat sequences when. Sometimes there might be branching paths, but then you'll see like one path. There is there is big gates or something. You're like, oh, and you like you start turning that way. And you're like, nope, turn turn straight back around, <laughs> turn to the other side. And then and as you said, like if if those sluice gates are also opened, you're like, oh, but wait a minute, I just passed um just passed this uh, uh oh, words pier, just passed ah. this pier where there was enemies shooting at me from, and it looked like there was a ladder there. I might, yes. There might be something up there for me to do and open that gate. I love it when uh, developers draw you to a place because of like gameplay, particularly enemies. I love it. I'm just like, yes, this gameplay is about you know fighting enemies, and there they are, <laughs> and I need to go fight them, and then they're like, ah, oh, they've led me to the next thing. I love it. Yeah, for sure. Um, so yeah, it was. It's it's really cool. I think in a lot of the cases, um, how they kind of guide you with the level design is through lengthy objects like for example pipes or uh, planks and stuff that's also to the benefit of this world they kind of made this world where having a lot of planks and crates and and (laughs) and pipes and stuff lying around 
feels natural enough. <laughs> so you're not like, what is like, why are there so many characters? Yeah. It's not like a, a wild <laughs> forest, and you're like, look at all these pipes. We've got to follow yeah, exactly. these pipes and crates. So, so plays a treat with the world building. But so yeah, so they kind of line up. There'll be like, if there is a sequence with a lot, like you're in some kind of place with a lot of pipes, for example, there'll be most, the majority of the pipes will kind of be angled towards where you need to go. And so it's kind of guiding the player visually that way. And then similar with when you're in the airboat, for example, and there was like planks in the water with creating ramps, the ramps will be angled in the direction you should be going, things like I was especially impressed with moments such as when you're on the airboat and there's like, um, there's like almost like a full barricade along, but then there's like the tiniest little squeeze that you're supposed to get through along the side. And then Mm -hmm. you're thinking like, how am I supposed to know this? But then you do because (laughs) because there's like, there's like a tiny little hole. There's like a tiny little opening and the ramp kind of curves like it goes up and then sideways as if you can kind of like slide through there you know so it's all about the shapes and everything and the level which was super impressive yeah we, you know we're humans right we read patterns we love finding yeah. patterns and things and we're like yeah we can see that that might work and when it does we go this game is amazing exactly it's beautiful makes you feel smart as well and you feel that's smart yeah treat. that's the treat when you when you figure out a lot of the puzzles in the game it just makes you feel smart and and then there's also the interactive elements in levels, usually tainted with red. Uh, there'll be like a little bit of red on it, usually that the things you can actually crank or turn and things like that, um, the valves and such. Um, but other than kind of the red hints, uh, it's usually just objects that you would naturally expect to be able to use, like valves and levers and stuff like that, which is... Clever design in, in just using naturally um, interactive day-to-day, daily life objects. Players yeah. would naturally be allured. So, yeah. Love it. Uh, and then, yeah, I also found, in general, it was a sense of... I, it was a lot of the times where I was like, where should I go? And then I was like, let me look up. And then when I look up... There was like stuff in the <laughs> there was stuff on the street or something that was like taking me in that was like angled in a way that I was like, oh, it's probably that way. And it's just super clever things like just like planks or like terraces stacked um above you and things like that that are kind of like in a path, in a pattern that guide you guide your eyes to a certain place. Um there's always something there. And then also wanted to specifically note when you're in Ravenholm there is that priest you meet the priest character mm. who's kind of like shooting off all the bad guys um, and then at some point he says I'll meet you at the church and then I was like the church and I look around and haha the church in the distance <laughs> <laughs> and that and moment was, was not so great the, the game didn't take camera control away from you to look at it right yeah exactly but you still figured it out and you're like oh I'm so smart it's over there. Yeah. Yeah. And then I... That church, there's a lot of these. I think it also nails just like tall buildings this game. There's a lot of these grandiose building sequences in, in the distance that kind of guide your eye. And for example, this church, you could kind of see it throughout the level while you're trying to get there. So you could always orient yourself to it. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Man, we could talk about Half-Life 2 for a long time together. <laughs> I see we are already... Uh, we. <laughs> We have yeah, made bad yeah, yeah. time, listener. We are desperately sorry. But how are we feeling for bit number three, Oliver? Just one little final thing. Squeeze it in. There is the um, there is moments where they go a little bit more specific with like signposts. Um, there'll be like the graffiti of the Half Life symbol that shows you that there is um, the lambda symbol shows you that there is a little secret there or something. And then also noticeably during the during the driving of the airboat there was like sometimes arrow plaques took you in the right direction um but the most interesting of those i found were like iconography for example when you're with opening sluice gates there'd be like a little icon of sluice gates opening with oh um, yes like right next to the valve or something yes Mm. really it's it's not on the nose and it feels natural and still kind of helps you out to tell you you should be interacting with these very nice to see. Well done, them. Best in class. Beautiful. Beautifully done. Shall we wrap up bit number three? Let's wrap it up. Yeehaw! And we are at uh, 45 minutes or so. <laughs> and at this point, we begin the closure of this episode with joy and fulfillment in our hearts. <laughs> but I also get to check in with you, Oliver. Other than Half-Life 2, what have you been playing? Just to finish off the Half-Life bit, oh, I wanted yeah? to say... I never realized where that valve sound came from. When you you know when you play a valve game yeah, and there's boom. a scary guy with the valve in the back of his head. Yeah. <laughs> but the sound actually plays in this game. I was like, oh my god, <laughs> <laughs> it's the valve sound. Which came first, I wonder. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. Who knows? But yeah, I am playing. Well, I played. Actually, I played um, Planet of Lana. Which is a beautiful little indie game um, created by a Danish studio, I believe. Swedish studio, actually. Mm. Um, and it's a very small team. Uh, I've been following it for a while. They have The art style is so beautiful. I have a, I have a wallpaper of it on about every screen I have. <laughs> um, <laughs> but it, it reminded me of very Ghibli-esque vibes when I saw the trailers. And so I was looking forward to it. Uh, it's it's very much in the likes of games like Limbo or Inside, where it's like a side-scroller with puzzle elements. Uh, very narrative-driven. But this one's, unlike those games, very colorful and kind of like watercolor-like palettes and things like that. Very beautiful to the eye and a lot of fun to play. It's kind of set in the future on this planet. Uh, where you need to kind of figure out what's going on with with these invading technological beings. <laughs> oh, you know them beings. They yep, just yep, come yep. around. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I highly recommend it. It's uh, yeah. it's uh, it's only about four and a half hours long if you love short games. Mm. Good for you. I think I have uh, time to squeeze in this one, and I really want to play it as well. So yeah, good recommendation. Thank you. I will try and get to that. How about yourself? How about me? <laughs> I. Uh, we'll say I've tried to play this game uh, a while back and I don't think I had the bandwidth for a platformer uh, but my significant other urged me to continue and just recently like this last weekend we both sat down to play it together and I found it works phenomenally as a two-player game as well is Sackboy. Mm. So 
thoroughly enjoying that, thinking it's beautiful, and I know it won a whole bunch of awards and stuff as well. Uh, when was it last year or the year before? So I'm now coming to it, as always, very late, but uh, yeah, finding it a pleasure. Nice. That's a, a big Sackboy big, big Adventure. That's the one. That's the, the one. Yeah, the, is it the PS5 one? I think it was yes, for PS5. Yes, yes. Yeah. By um, Studio Gobo. Yes, I say yes. I have <laughs> I have not checked. I was just like, yeah, let's play this game. This is great. Nice. Yeah, I've been, I've been wanting to check that one out. It is it is co-op, right? Yeah, I I am not certain uh, whether the the levels have changed because we're playing with two people. But I think what we discovered is certain levels are only for two people, and then mm. the normal levels you can play by yourself, or you can play them with a partner, and they become just as much fun. So. Yeah, oh, very well done. That's similar to Little Nightmares. They also had like limit to two people level. Things like that in their level. Oh yes, I know. No, not Little Nightmares. Like... Little Big Planet. I mean. Oh, okay, yeah, Little Nightmares. I was like, well, I just haven't played two, so maybe <laughs> yeah, that's so what happens in two. Completely different game. <laughs> <laughs> if you're interested, listen to our episode on Little Nightmares. Ha <laughs> <laughs> uh, ha. Oliver, where can people get a hold of us? Find us at Three Bit Design on Twitter. Yeah, and that's Yay. it, right? Anything else to add? No. <laughs> then we are done for today. Thank you so much for listening and for joining us once again. Have a lovely time of your lives and we will say goodbye. Goodbye. Ding ding. Marker.